This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I am your host, Lorez, and we are back for season two to discuss the latest film causing controversy, Dragged Across Concrete. That bulletproof vest you got there is real nice. Makes you look svelte. Like when a female puts on a girdle. I want to talk about this movie, but I also want to talk about this movie in the greater context of the rest of Cine State's library of films. Have you seen their other movies that they've put out over the past couple of years? They, they are a more recent company. They're based out of uh, Dallas, Texas, I believe. And they've been putting out niche, almost grindhouse films for the modern era. And for me, I sit down and I watch these movies and they feel like real movies. You know, and, and that's something that is not always a quip when you go out to the theater and you see whatever it may be that Warner Brothers or Disney is pushing out there. But uh, give me your take on Cinestate as a whole before we get into the, the film. Well, to be honest, I haven't seen too much of their library. Not much, uh, I think, in the grand scheme of things at all. But I've seen a couple of their films now. And I have the standoff at Sparrow Creek in my watch list on my Prime account, I believe. And just from what I've seen in the trailer... I'm really excited to watch that, so I'm probably going to do it this week. But, yeah, I can't say I'm the most tenured patron of theirs, but from everything I've seen and from what I've read and from, I think, their commitment to their artists' visions, I'm a huge Cinestate guy right now because I think I think they have a very defined vision as to what's going on in Hollywood, I guess, so to speak. We can We can just refer to the film business as Hollywood, but mm -hmm. they, they have a real defined opinion about what's going on there. And I think they're trying to provide a remedy to it. And they have a very particular way of doing that. And it's ruffling all the right feathers, I think, in the critical sphere, in the general discussion sphere of regular movie fans and uh, cinephiles alike. So, Cinestate is doing pretty well by me so far, although I do need to catch up on quite a bit of their material. Well, they've only got five films to their name at the moment. I don't know what they have coming out next, but this was a pretty big year for them with Dragged Against Concrete. Dragged, yeah, whatever. And the standoff at Sparrow Creek, uh, both of which were very interesting films, especially the the standoff at Sparrow Creek reminded me quite a bit of Reservoir Dogs, but it deals with something. It's strange because I would have thought that that movie would get raked over the coals a little harder, considering the main conceit of the film and also just the, like, I guess the subtext that the movie provides. Um, but I, I don't want to get too much into that because you need to take that and uh, digest it all on your own when you eventually watch the film. I don't want to spoil anything here. So when it came to this particular movie, what was your expectation for it? My expectation, just based off reading the synopsis and the plot summaries that I was seeing online and then hearing about the kind of subject matter they were tackling, I got to say my expectations for the film were, I think, a lot more brutal and unforgiving than the film turned out to be. And that's certainly not a criticism of the film at all. But just in the climate of contemporary America and whatnot, 
when you hear things like police brutality and cops on suspension for violence and themes of racism in police or anything like that, it really stokes aggressions on the political spectrum of especially Hollywood, but in terms of the whole film discussion. So, yeah, I I had this misconception that it was going to be a lot more brutal and, yeah, a lot more, I think, brash in how it presented itself and its characters. And, yeah, that's not exactly what I got. And I have to say... It's I'm I'm not neither I I wouldn't say I would have been disappointed if that was the case, but being that it wasn't, I guess I can still say I was pleasantly surprised. I will say that in the hype leading up to this movie's release, and there was a weird period of time where this film was finished and it just wasn't out to the public. I mean, it had been screened, I believe, in early 2018, and it took essentially a year for it to be able to gain any kind of distribution. So there was this period of time where everybody's just wondering what's happening with this movie. We haven't heard anything about it. It was supposed to come out this year. It hasn't happened yet. And you're reading the reviews and these interviews where they're talking about, oh, two racist cops, police brutality. They're the heroes. This is a big gray area. Is this okay in film right now? And you watch the movie, and the police brutality is not at all what I was expecting. It's literally just Mel Gibson no, stepping on either. a guy's neck, right? So On Hector's neck, yeah. of all people. Hector. Yes, yeah, yeah. So completely overhyped. You, you can't trust any of these interviewers who are trying to like, paint a particular image, I guess, of the film that they want people to see before it even becomes well, available. Well, no, no, no. Can, can we actually uh, kind of go off on a little tangent about this really quick. I do find it really interesting. And you said uh, of a film they want you to see. I I don't know. I'm not getting that impression just based off the the misconception that I had, but really based off of the the early buzz or whatever that was going on in some of the critical sphere. It it seemed that they were trying to I guess minimize the the film or to an extent because maybe it didn't match up with their uh, certain viewpoint. But yeah, I got to say it was a lot more mild than I thought. And Mm -hmm. part of me thinks that maybe because it doesn't go at the same proclivities of some of the the critical sphere or whoever out there who who was reviewing it or talking about it, they're trying to knock it down as just, uh, just kind of exploitation trash almost in a sense. Sure, they give it some praise because it's very competently made. And it has some good chemistry and performances by the lead actors, but I think I think there was a little bit of a um, a false kind of stir going on around it. I think one hundred percent. It was really much ado about nothing in terms of the subject matter, but we can go on about that a little later. Well, there are aspects of the movie that do play into that narrative a bit, but I think they relied on the more buzzy elements that they could manipulate to try and convey that image of the film. Uh, I do want to get into another point of controversy among some journalists, which was that Mel Gibson happens to be starring in a movie like this. And we know about Mel Gibson's treacherous, evil history. Unbelievable, this man. (laughs) 
wanting his his wife to get raped by a pack of ends, I believe he said on a voicemail. He's got some interesting thoughts and opinions, this Mel Gibson, or at least he did back in 2004. Uh, so what did you think about the casting of this movie? Because I, I love the duo of Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn as these two cops. And uh, moreover, I was really impressed with the supporting cast and uh, Tori Kittles, I believe his name is. Yeah. Well, me personally, let's talk in a context outside the actual film for a second. When hearing about the casting choices, it didn't rub me the wrong way and it didn't particularly excite me out of my chair. But I I like both of the actors for for what they can do. Now, yeah, you can say what what you want about Mel Gibson's uh, recreational activities outside of cinema. But as an actor, as a filmmaker, he's utterly proficient and I think Vince Vaughn is somebody especially after watching Brawl in Cell Block 99 from the same director as Craig Zahler he just has a great gusto about him that I think is often unused or it's misused and this was a case in which it was used quite well in my opinion mm-hmm. so about the the duo I think Reading into it is only for the people that really want to kind of connect it to a larger agenda, so to speak. For me, I, I think it could have been any two actors and or any other two actors. I don't think people would be making the same connections that they well, are to the themes of the film. I think it is something to note that Cine State seems to come at their films from a particular angle that does not fit in with the rest of Hollywood's agenda. And I don't know how conscious that is or what, or if it's just more old school thinking, but they seem to rely on actors who are not, again, part of that agenda. That's Mel Gibson, Vince Vaughn, uh, also Kurt Russell with Bone Tomahawk. They do recruit actors who have maybe right of center leanings at at the very least, uh, politically speaking, but also they bring in fringe actors as well who have either been blacklisted or aren't properly utilized by Hollywood. I'm thinking about Matthew Fox in uh, Bone Tomahawk. He's somebody who has notoriously rubbed people the wrong way on movie sets, and you don't really see him get cast that often. Or, uh, you know, uh, Udo Kier. He, he pops up in quite a few of their films. He was in Brawl and Cell Block 99, uh, Puppet Master. So... There is an element to that. And again, I don't know if it's a deliberate thing or what, because all of these men are very talented. It could just be pure coincidence. But I think it's something to to at least note. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's something to note. But again, I think that's only really up for evaluation if there are, I guess, bigger agendas at hand. Because what relevance does it really have aside from it being some external kind of conflating issue outside of the actual film itself right? That, that that might unsettle some people. Now, I know in Brawl in Cell Block 99 in particular, yeah, it, it does ruffle feathers in terms of it says a few things that maybe uh, a different studio w- would nix from a script or shows a few things or addresses a few themes. But again, at the same time, it, it, do, do we really want homogeny? In film, and the answer is a resounding no. I think if you look at the patterns of lately, it's people are getting sick of 
being beaten over the head with the same perspectives and the same viewpoints and the same thematic elements in every major studio release. Not that these are, these are real indie pictures, but I think this, it's not really something to talk about unless there's somebody trying to, again, kind of minimize, I think the impact or the relevance of this film or trying to simply write it off as I saw somebody uh, I'm not even going to mention the website I saw it on, but somebody writing off Zayler as a disciplined and talented troll, which I think is just, I think that's a gross, it's very dismissive uh, misstatement. I, I, I don't like that, that comment or, or the idea that that's the case at all, because I don't believe that to be true. I don't think he's somebody who is deliberately ruffling feathers. I think he is aware of the fact that what he's doing doesn't play into the greater plan that Hollywood has seemed to designate for itself. But I also don't feel like that's why he's making movies. I feel like he's making movies and writing books and doing everything he's doing because to some extent he's a creative genius. You know, it is interesting to take a look at Dragged Across Concrete and also the the standoff at Sparrow Creek and I would even say Brawl in Cell Block 99. And these are not movies that would get any kind of funding if Warner Brothers or Disney or Sony were cobbling them together and putting them into production. They would look extremely different. And I think the central themes of the three movies I just named, again, clash with everything that they are trying to promote right now. Well, I mean, if you want to go off on this a little bit more, it it is my opinion that just based off what I've seen from Zayler so far, I think he is a little bit of a countercultural filmmaker right now in the landscape. Absolutely. Now, now yeah, he, he's he's very independent right now. Sure, he's being recognized and he, he's becoming a little bit of a household name in terms of the cinephile sphere and just in just the conversation of film in general. He's definitely becoming a name that people are recognizing now. But he's certainly countercultural to almost everything else that's been going on in at least mainstream cinema the, the last few years in particular. But I'd say he's even countercultural to a little bit of the indie stuff that's going out there too. And that might be why he's resonating so much right now with people. And I know me personally when I had watched Brawl in Cell Block 99, for example, I picked up on that energy pretty easily. And the good thing about his films, from what I've seen so far, is he's very good at laying things out, but not spelling them out. He, mm. He's good. He's good with imagery, and he's good with the the overall tone and just, just the films naturally portraying their message to to put forth this countercultural standpoint that I think he's making. But like you said, I I don't think he's going out of his way to make it. I think it's honest. And I read an interview with him a few days ago that seemed very convincing in which he just said, and he was badgered by this interviewer almost, by the way, which I found shameless. Uh, And he just said, at the end of the day, what I write is what I find personally compelling. And I wholly believe that statement. And, when you look into his background, too, it, it just it, there doesn't seem to be any any nefarious agenda. And that's the thing that 
a lot of people have tried to ascribe to his films, and that's why I get mad that the internet gives stupid people a voice. I'm completely on board with you there. I will say, though, that some elements of, I guess, pushing certain ideas in did feel a little more shoehorned in this movie than they had in other movies. I'm thinking specifically of when Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, they sit down at Don Johnson's desk and he basically spells out how being called a racist nowadays is the equivalent to being called a communist in the 1950s. And it felt a little too on the nose for my liking. No, I I agree that (laughs) he did actually throw it out there in that instance. My opinion was that I think that was a little bit of uh, a fake-out, so to speak. I think that was almost a smokescreen for what you were going to see in the rest of the film. Because I think, again, the perception of what this film was going to be versus what it actually is, is radically different. And I think that, on the part of Zayler, was, I think, almost to mock those very kinds of themes that were maybe being critiqued previously in his other films. It, because when you get past that scene, outside the context of that scene, in the other, in one other scene where Mel Gibson and Laurie Holden, who plays his wife, have a brief discussion about the same kind of stuff, it really doesn't boil down to that thematically. Like, nothing does. It, it has nothing to do with these men's viewpoints on society and how how it treats uh, police brutality and, and race and whatnot, it, it really doesn't make its sole focus that, as opposed to something like Crash, which wins Best Picture for being the most schlocky, ham-fisted garbage you could possibly imagine in that right. Movie. Yeah, I, I, I would like to transition now into the overall structure of the film, because I had said this to you in a Facebook message, S. Craig Zoller is a novelist by trade. That's where he started. That's where he made his bones to begin with. I look at each of his films and they don't share the traditional film structure in some ways. They feel more, there's a vastness to them. And one of the problems that I had with this movie up front was that the first hour felt a bit slow. And it gave me a perception of the movie that was ultimately subverted roughly halfway through. And then in retrospect, when I finished the film, I realized, okay, even if that first hour or so happens to be weaker than the last 90 minutes of the movie, which I found exhilarating, I was so invested. Without that hour of character development, you probably feel nothing for these two cops and their journey that they're on. And also the Tori Kittle's character as well. So what what did you think about the the film's pacing? And did you find any flaws in that like I had, or was it more uh, acceptable to you? Yeah, I think you make a good point in that, that our buildup almost seems a little staggering. But in the grand scheme of the film, when you look at it, a two and a half hour movie, it really makes sense. And the way I'd classify it, it's an easy term. Everybody knows it's a slow burn. And I think when you come into the film and you see they're they're doing their thing and 
They're, they're busted for police brutality early on. And Mel Gibson has the, or his character at least, has the inklings of this plan he wants to carry out. It just feels like the stakes are slowly being risen. And I got to say, it, the performances of the main actors, if nothing else, even though I think there was plenty, uh, plenty of other stuff that kept me hooked in, the performance of the just main two actors, and yeah, Tori Kittles, although you don't see a little bit of him for a little while toward the second act, but just their overall chemistry and just exploring who these guys are after the fact of this uh, faux pas that they had in the field of stepping on Hector's skull or his neck or whatever. It's just interesting to see how Zayler explores their individual humanity. I think that's what kept me hooked in, like you said, for the character development, because you, we have a very particular caricature, I think, in our heads when we hear about these stories on TV. And that's this isn't to minimize what the people in real life do, because they have to answer for that. But in the, in the context of this film, they get in trouble early on, what, the first 15 minutes maybe of the film? Mm-hmm. And then from there, we see them recede back into their personal lives. And then, yeah, like you said, after the first hour, it's pretty much uh, the exhilarating adventure that it is. But so in that interim period, I just found the exploration of their humanity and to show that their choices while badly, I think, uh, inspired and I think misguided and a little entitled, you just get a very clear idea of who these people are. And it adds a very human aspect to them that you're not going to see in a movie like Crash or anything like that, where usually these characters are side characters, very caricaturized and written off very, very quickly. They're just bad people because they're bad people and nothing more. Whereas this, by even that first hour's end, you're even asking yourself the question, well, are these really bad guys or are they just down in their luck or is there something more to it? So me personally, that first hour, I think, I think laid a great foundation. And because of the talent of the main two actors and the supporting cast, I found myself compelled by their interactions, their their admissions and yeah, their, their just trajectories were made compelling to me early on. I want to talk about the villains of the film because when you initially gave your thoughts in our little Facebook thread, uh, you thought that maybe there could have been some more development there. Some time has passed since then, but I also want to touch on something that you had just said where you are analyzing whether or not you actually think these cops are bad guys. I never had the impression that they were bad guys whatsoever, but there is obviously a conflict there. There is a grayness to especially the Mel Gibson character. And in the, in the greater context, when you see who the antagonists of this film are and just how impulsive and, and evil they are, I think those lines are completely uh, clarified in that. Yeah, I I think, uh, and I think that was a good choice by Zayler. I think he, well, yeah, it's, it's obvious he did it purposely to really, to really show the line that, listen, there are some people out there that 
or have good intentions and they want to do good. They step over the line a few times and they make mistakes. They're not perfect, but they're generally good. And then there are actually just evil, horrid, vile, heartless people out there. And I think that was a good way of communicating that message and and showing that real contrast between what average people in society, and I hate to say that word these days, but what society deems as a bad person ever so frivolously, as opposed to what is so far and away clearly a bad, evil person. Absolutely. And I think the lack of character development for that gang of antagonists plays a part in that. Because oftentimes when you have that villain, they can be charismatic, they can be funny, you start to not really hate them. You don't hate the Joker, you don't hate Lex Luthor. You, these are not genuinely hateable people. They do things that maybe you wish they wouldn't do, but there's a fun element to that. And there's no fun element to these guys. You watch them, you hate what they're doing, and it's, all, it's repulsive. How, well, the only thing is out. the only thing is in the first sequence with one of the I, I guess we'll say thugs is that there is this ironic moment where he just decides to shoot everything yes around I, I, him like a bag of chips and yeah. a TV screen I think those were funny little tonal diversions I think because Zaylor is savvy in how okay this is going to be a brutal kind of heartless scene on part of this character but we're going to show that even in these micro situations that this character even has his own sense of like fun or humor. And, and it does alleviate some of that bleakness, but sorry to. Kind no, of I, off. I, I, I loved that, that creative choice that he took where, as you just said, he's just shooting random, like it's a video game. Like he's just firing off bullets for the sake of firing off bullets. And then the second guy uh, shooting at the van to shut the guy up every single time he starts talking. Like I thought these were very clever ways to add personality to these guys without uh, delving into a territory where they become fully likable. I also liked uh, spoilers. I liked how we never saw these guys besides the, yeah, yeah. the main Russian thug guy. They were in costume the entirety of the movie and we didn't get a peek at what they looked like. And I think that's another element for one. It's kind of haunting visually, but then mm-hmm. two, I think it portrays exactly the lack of humanity that those guys had. They didn't have an ounce of of compassion or sympathy or anything left in them. And I think that was a way for Zaylor to communicate that visually. And then also, I, I think for them, if they took off their masks and their goggles and everything, yeah, it would lessen that. I, it would lessen that feeling within the viewer because then you're seeing a you're seeing a person's face there and. It mm-hmm. might minimize it a little bit. So I did like that as well. And I do, we're going to have to talk about the bank scene. The bank scene is really what pushed me over the edge with this movie, where I was like, Jesus Christ, I did not expect this to go down this way at all. And that's where I realized I love this movie. Because <laughs> that that was, a, that was a decision that Zoller made that was very bold. And... I don't know if anyone watching the film was actually expecting that to go down as it did. Did you have the inclination that that was going to end as ugly as it did? Uh, I did, I have to say. And it's not because I'm smart or anything. Um, and again, spoilers, I, I'm sure whoever's listening to this has seen it. Well, well here's but- the deal. On YouTube, 
when we do an hour long show and we don't get into spoilers, people complain about the lack of spoilers. So for, for all future episodes at this point, there's going to be spoilers. So spoil away. Okay. So when they introduced the Jennifer Carpenter character, I was like, hey, good to see her back in this movie. She was in mm-hmm. Brawl and Cell Block 99, and she was pretty good in that. I think she's a very talented actress. And, I mean, especially in the short window that she has, she plays this mother that's having some kind of uh, slight depression after birthing her child. Yeah. And the buildup, I think about halfway through the buildup, I knew something was going to happen because she were, she skips out on the bus runs home, breaks down, and her husband's like, all right, that's enough. You got to go back to work. And with all that leading up, I just thought, there's no way this ends good for her. This can only end badly. Well, here's what I was anticipating. I thought, here's what I thought was going to happen. She's going to go into the bank. Everyone is going to get gunned down. She's going to be the one survivor. They're going to take her as a hostage. And that's how the rest of the movie is going to play out. No, that's not what happens. What happens is uh, she has her hands and her face blown the fuck apart with a with a very powerful gun, and it's very fast. Immediate. She's like the fir- she's the first one to die in the bank, yeah. and that, that's that's ultimately what what shocked me about this movie. And I respected that creative decision a whole lot. Uh, she is like third build ultimate or or third or fourth build and she's on the poster and she's only in the movie for maybe about 10 15 minutes tops so i was expecting this to have legs to it i really thought she was going to at least make it to the end and then maybe die there but uh no she's just one of these brawl and cell block 99 actors who essentially is doing a cameo in this film along with don johnson and udo kier uh where she pops up and she's not on screen for long yeah, that, that scene was just uh, very unforgiving in, in a great sense. And Yeah. Uh, even though I felt I saw it coming, I, I think it served the the purpose of the story ever so effectively. Just because, again, it, it's about the lack of humanity that those guys had. And that being a contrast from what we think is a, or what we usually perceive to be a lack of humanity in, in the two police officers in Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. And yeah, I think I think Zayler just wanted to put that in as well as kind of an aside. And that, that's the novelist in him, really bring, bridging in that character. Just a complete aside from the central plot of the film to illustrate, yeah, minor but important point, uh, point of the movie about the actual villains and to, I think, just showcase that yeah, nobody's safe. This, it's not, this isn't a clean, tidy movie where people are going to escape out of convenience or because mm-hmm. it, would, it would suck if they, if they got killed. And this was an example of, yeah, the latter. What did you think of uh, Vince Vaughn's bleached hair gay novelist look? Oh, I mean, geez, I thought it was more effective than the white face that Michael J. White and Tori <laughs> no. Kittles were wearing. When they showed the disguises for Tori Kittles and Michael J. White, my immediate thought was uh, Kenny's Judson Riverhawk uh, <laughs> appearance from Bitcoin Madness, where he was yes. just in a in a straw blonde wig and had white face on. But yeah, I, I, I did love uh, Vince Vaughn's 
disguise there, the, the bleached hair gay novelist look. And Mel Gibson, I don't even think he was in a disguise. What, did he just have on sunglasses or something? A hat? And a hat, yeah. yeah. Sunglasses, classic, uh, like, middle-aged boomer disguise, sunglasses yeah. and a hat. So getting into the latter half of this film, I started to notice that the the tone of the movie shifted around the 90-minute mark. And I don't know if you've seen this film that William Friedkin directed, I believe, in 1977 called Sorcerer. But it's this movie uh, about a bunch of like freelance truck drivers who have to uh, drive some kind of explosive material up a mountain. And it's very sensitive. You hit a bump in the road, the whole truck could go up. For whatever reason, I felt that this movie was channeling a lot of that movie, Sorcerer, and that weird kind of anything could happen at any moment. Uh, It's a free-for-all. We have uh, a prize at stake, essentially, in that, uh, the gold. And it made it more intense and more fun leading into the finale, because I did feel as if somebody was going to get away with all this. Everybody has their motivations. We have enough characters here where I don't think Zoller is going to leave us with, oh, the gold is just going to sink into a swamp. What was your feeling going into the finale? Did you have any expectations for who may live, who might die? And were you surprised at all at how things unfolded? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Going back to the Friedkin connection that you had, I, I think it's no coincidence that Zayler is, I think, channeling on his affinity for Grindhouse films and 1970s films. And I got to say, this guy, he, he, he understands what I want to see because that's exactly the kind of films that uh, I would be tapping into uh, or, or will be eventually as a filmmaker myself. But yeah, I, I think I think he has a real sense for stuff like that that has worked. And I think he doesn't really stray from conventions that worked back in the seventies with the shooting style, with the grittiness, with the one takes, the long takes. And I think he has very conservatively modernized it into the late 2010s now, uh, 2019. But in terms of, yeah, going toward the conclusion, I, I guess it was just, it was such a nail biter because there, there was this lingering sense toward the end of the film that Michael J. White and Tori Kittles were were ready to bail on this terrible job they got themselves in on with these with these just heartless thugs and the, this Russian piece of shit. And there was also this inkling that they were on to uh, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn's characters mm-hmm. trail or tailing them throughout the entirety of the second and third act. And so I was really on the edge of my seat in terms of, are they going to end up uh, working together? Are they, they going to let Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson sabotage this mission so they can get out with, with, uh, you know, with themselves in one piece and who's going to get the gold if that happens. So yeah, I, I was, I was theorizing that, especially Tori Kittle's character, who they call him Slim, but his name's Henry, I believe, in the movie. Uh, I felt that he was going to kind of set the, the the Russian guy and his two heartless thugs on kind of a false pretense mission so so they could be sabotaged. But 
this movie keeps you guessing in a very subtle way. And I think it's just the, the gravity of the scenario that adds up and builds up over time, along with the sheer heartlessness and menace of the villains, as well as the stakes for the two main characters. Not that Tori Kittles isn't a main character, because he is. He's a lead character, but uh, they focus a little bit more, I think, on Vaughn and Gibson's characters. But anyway, with the stakes seeming to rise and no certainty of any kind of success, especially with the viciousness of the of the villains, I, I just think it, it's just good old-fashioned organic suspense you get from the tense nature of the situation. Once we got to a certain point of these characters, it makes the most sense from a story perspective that it's going to be uh, Henry, the Tory Kittle's character, getting away with the gold. Because we had that scene at the very beginning establishing that he wants a better life for his family, they're trapped in a really shitty environment. And, uh, you know, you get that also with the Mel Gibson character and his family, yes. But... Um, there's just there's a bigger redemption arc in play when it comes to Henry and I had a feeling that especially once Vince Vaughn's character happens to die in the movie uh, things are probably going to go in that direction what did you think of the ultimate finale once our bad guys are offed Michael J. White is, die- uh, is dead, excuse me. Uh, Vince Vaughn is dead. And we're just left with Tory Kittles, Mel Gibson. They're working together to get this gold out. And then things go sour. Yeah, that was, that was one of those things that that was part of that organic suspense I was talking about because they try to take every contingency to trust each other. and But th- there's still this tension there that, yeah, they don't necessarily know this guy opposite them. They they don't know their real intentions, so there's never that real layer of trust. And then when Tori Kittles or Henry is is towing Brett, played by Mel Gibson, towing his car toward the toward the swamp or the river or whatever, and they both ready their guns. It, it, that was just, I think, such a well pulled off scene because of. It's done subtly, but it elicits such a suspenseful reaction from the viewer because you really don't know who is the loose cannon in this scenario and mm-hmm. who who's going to be the one maybe to walk away from it and and who's going to be the one to 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 die there. And uh, between those two, it just seemed like the stakes were so high for both of them, and they were so easy to sympathize with and they were so well defined that you just don't want one of them to go there there's there's not a clear bad guy in that sequence because the bad guys are dead so now the real question is well who's more desperate and who's who's just slightly worse and that was a fun part of the of the scenario to figure out because when push comes to shove uh, Mel Gibson's character, Brett, seems to be the one that he's being very rational in his in his uh, request that Henry cough up his phone so he can disregard of any video evidence that could get him in further trouble. 
But Henry, on the other hand, is very resilient to that. So, again, it's almost like how with how well-tempered those guys are in the situation, who just has that tiny bit more desperation to go far to get themselves killed. And it turns out to be Mel Gibson. And I mm-hmm. think it's mapped out quite well that that was going to be the way that it went because you get the monologue from Mel Gibson, I think toward the end of the first act where he talks about how he's been on the street for like 27 years and he hasn't raised a single notch in rank. He thought he was going to do well by himself and he's just busting his ass, freezing out in the cold. His wife's got MS, his daughter's being harassed in the streets. So you see that it really is him that is more desperate to the point where he gets himself killed. And not that Kittle's character isn't isn't desperate and isn't desperate to a great extent, but just the fact that he's quite a bit younger and that maybe there's just a little bit lesser of stakes given that uh, Brett Gibson's character is now pretty much a disgraced cop. So I think there was a clear trajectory there that laid it out. And Mm -hmm. when you think, when you think about it logically, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense though it does make you feel great because you like the character. Absolutely. I, I, I co-sign everything you had just said there. Now, uh, when viewing the film in its entirety in retrospect, do you see any weak points in this movie? Because, you know, maybe the pacing could have been tightened a little bit, but I, I again, as I said before, my initial complaint about the first opening, the first half of the movie, uh, I think actually does it a great benefit. Uh, Did you see any flaws in this film? It's really hard for me to consider that right now because I I think this is a movie that, yeah, like you said, subverts expectations in a lot of ways and, as we both agreed, plays out very much like a novel. And if you're aware of that, I think it, it gives you everything you expect but then more. But with films like this that I, I just really like or even love upon my first viewing, the the real kind of criticisms that I dig out don't usually set in until a little bit after I've seen it and have been able to digest it. And it's been a few days since I've seen it now. But one thing I did think, because it's just such a thing and almost such a cliche, and yeah, it's Zayler's story, but you know what? I've kind of had enough of the stock Russian fucking criminals by now. <laughs> yeah. I really have. I mean, even when you think of just Vince Vaughn, like that, it's the same fucking villain that Vince Vaughn had to deal with when he was in True Detective season two. It's the same thing, pretty much. And it's like, okay. Well, they're, they're skeevy people. I mean, what do you yeah. want? Another Japanese abortionist from, or Korean? Excuse me. <laughs> I mean, no, or, I, 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 I fully. <laughs> agree with that i do think that they are and they have been overused forever but yeah uh, yeah since since what the 1950s or 60s it's and i just see it and i think to myself all right well either there's a purpose there that zayler made it a russian guy that i don't quite or didn't care to really analyze just yet and neither have i to this point or it's just he was like oh well just make him a fucking russian guy well Well, dude i'm sick of that (laughs) 
I, I think what Zayler uh, was trying to communicate with that was that, uh, you know, Trump is a puppet of Russia and Putin is the ultimate evil. And or Russophobia. That, it must be that. It must be. Contemporary times, contemporary issues. <laughs> what would you Maybe. like to see? What would you like to see going forward from S. Craig Zoller and Cine State? Because they have carved out this this brand of filmmaking that is particularly violent and to use a word that uh, you had said earlier, unforgiving. And that those are key traits to be found in each of their films. Even even Puppet Master, which I, I watched for the first time only about a week ago and is so retardedly fun in how over the top and ridiculous it is. Um, I'm still going to watch it. It, it you know it, they they they're building their own genre and it feels like authentic movie making it it it, it it's absolutely channeling that 1970s gusto that was brought forth with the new hollywood era yeah yeah i totally agree with that and it, it's funny to think i i'm i was trying to think of um where I would maybe want Zayler to go next because he's he's undoubtedly savvy. And like we said, his passions are routed in the 1970s stylistics, which I think are, are timeless, in my opinion, the, the, mm-hmm. the aesthetics and the techniques of the 70s. But that's just my two cents. But I was thinking for a second, I'd almost want to see him do like a real kung fu movie, like a real 1970s style kung fu movie to do something super out there and different. But he almost kind of did that with Brawl and Cell Block 99 because it's very hand-to-hand combat-based. He's got that um, that upbeat, jazzy, R&B-style soundtrack to it. So maybe a full-on horror film, like one that's uh, a real horror film, like Puppet Not Master. Puppet Master. Yeah, no. Puppet Master, I can't wait to watch, and I'm sure... It's good in its own goofy, silly, right? And and there are a place for those movies. And I'm glad somebody like Zayler doesn't feel that he has to shy away from them because of his other material. But maybe he can do a full-out, straight-up horror movie. I, I'd be interested to see what he can conjure up in that regard. Because now we know that he can dig into noir, into uh, action films. He can dig into westerns. He can, if you want to branch off Brawl and Cell Block 99, he, he can possibly even go in like kung fu or like martial arts types films i I would be all for seeing a martial arts film written and directed by him starring michael jai white oh yeah oh man yeah absolutely now i think i think the world could benefit greatly from a film like that uh as far as horror goes though i mean that that seems to be his prime territory when it comes to writing so i have a feeling it'll only be a matter of time before we do get something well not to mention the guy was in a black metal band so i think he's got some crazy ideas in there oh i didn't even know that i knew he he was he was in music he was in a like norwegian black metal band yeah he was into that crazy shit but he he seems like quite the um quite the well-spoken humble guy for the black metal crowd Sure. I, really, I do want to really talk going about, against type. Yeah. I want to talk about the music a little bit because they got the OJs to do the soundtrack to this. The, o, yeah. the 1970s Motown band. And also uh, a band from around here that has not really garnered a whole lot of hype. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember their, their name. 
but unfortunately, it's not coming to mind at the moment. But, uh, you know, and S. Craig Zoller, I believe he wrote all of the music or most of the music. And some mm-hmm. of it is on the nose, but it's on the nose in that 1970s, like exploitation film soundtrack style, like where it's almost explaining the plot or, or what is on screen uh, as you're listening to the song. And also uh, Shotgun Safari is so fucking catchy of a song. They end the film on that note. Um, did you pick up on the soundtrack in that vintage 70s feel that they were clearly going for where it's it's almost half... It's it's like it's like it's half death wish and half not quite like black exploitation but there's there's elements of that. No, I definitely hear you. This is another thing I read into before seeing the movie and I I'm really glad that he he goes that far in uh I guess uh yeah, he he just goes out of his way to really kind of put his fingerprints on every avenue of the film and I I think that's great uh on his part to use his experience in music to integrate that into the tone and the story of the films and whatnot i for one loved the music i i think he's got an ear and listen i'm not a black metal fan whatsoever uh so i (laughs) i have no bias toward the music that he was making in his formative days Mm -hmm. like 20 years ago and everything but his sensibilities for other kinds of music to show that he's a real musician by trade and not just some genre hound and just his savvy in integrating that with the overall tones of his films. This is something you can find in brawl and cell block 99 as well. That again, that kind of jazzy upbeat R and B sound that, that he puts in it. But with this one, yeah, it, it has this very resonating quality. It, it, me watching the film and hearing that music for some odd reason it just it sunk me into the car with gibson and vaughn and i I think that's just for one the quality of the music which is super catchy and it sounds so stimulating Mm -hmm. and then just zayler's sensibilities of really sinking you into the 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 atmosphere of the film so i guess yeah in, in one word he just understands atmosphere and and he knows a good soundtrack and I would love to continue to see him integrate such uh, musical compositions into his, into his films. And for me, who, again, somebody who really idolizes the 1970s in terms of filmmaking and uh, independent cinema and whatnot, it just seems like he's, just bringing such an organic feeling back to films and such an engaging feeling back to films that don't get me wrong has been done by other people over the years, but with him, it's done with a very clear and almost individual affinity for the things that made cinema so great, particularly in the seventies. So yeah, for somebody like me, it it works really well and it sinks you in to the to the atmosphere of the film uh very effectively i completely agree and i i, I want to touch on two things but first off uh the name of the group that is performing on the soundtrack alongside the ojs is Tavares, and they're oh. from new bedford mass so oh wow that yeah that that's pretty damn close to us yeah yeah so uh something you would just said is that it all feels 
very individual because he's his fingerprints are all over so much of the creative process here when it comes to the writing, the directing, and then the music as well. Um, that is absolutely something that I don't know if we're lacking it, but we're lacking it on a grand scale from multifaceted, creative, talented individuals. And a lot of the movies that come out nowadays feel as if they've been like, like aspects of them feel as if they've been decided upon by a community or a branch of people, as opposed to one person's individual vision, organizing and assembling all of these moving parts to specifically tailor it to their own sensibilities. And there are few filmmakers in general that can operate in the directing, in the writing, the editing, and especially the music. John Carpenter is one of those guys. I was obviously. about to make that comparison. Maybe Zaylor is trying to make him make his push to be uh, to draw Carpenter comparisons, in which he just succeeded with you doing so. Yeah, so yeah. maybe that's the idea. Uh, could be. And I, you know, I was watching a an older film from '98 uh, called <laughs> uh, Buffalo '66 that started this guy Vincent Gallo, and I see. And it, it it's almost like a peripheral thing in regards to Cine State in these movies because he is one of those guys, and he got in trouble for the same kind of thing that you know many of the people involved in this movie and you know, Mel Gibson or whatever got in trouble for back in the early aughts, just speaking a little too much and a little too honestly in interviews. And he was another one of these guys who had his hands. In, in, in every aspect of the creative process of his films and eventually decided to bow out of Hollywood for that reason. And I don't know, we, we just need more people like that who are willing to pick up all the slack if need be to create something that is truly different and aren't afraid to be criticized or face any kind of repercussions because they're so unapologetically who they are. Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation that does need to happen in cinema right now. And this is something that I'm pretty sure you follow Jim Cummings uh, online. And oh, yeah. Something that he said pretty much about ownership of your movies. And it's something that Zaylor really seems to understand because the argument that Cummings makes is that, yeah, sure, you can sell it out to a major distributor. They can take a high percentage of the gross and of the of the residuals and whatnot, and it's really not your property anymore. So what you should be doing, and the tides look to be changing. This is going to be slow, I think, but Cinestate is savvy to it. They're doing limited releases and then throwing their stuff out on video on demand, and I think pocketing everything that people put into it. Like I paid six bucks to watch it on Prime, and I think that goes right to them. But anyway, the point I'm making is that Zaylor knows that his movies are very much his, and I think he's not even going out of his way because it feels very organic, but I think he is also making the effort to, again, not only legally own his own films, but that his films are a very specific identity that, that can't be lifted from a studio, that, that a studio couldn't necessarily replicate with with one of their usual kinds of directors and i think that's an important aspect of film that needs to be 
reconsidered today and that films are supposed to be very personal and when it's somebody who, who's trying to car- carve themselves out as a modern auteur like Zayler is, it, it seems that he's really emphasizing, uh, em- emphasizing and heeding that message of just completely having ownership of your films one way or the other, whether it's being a one-man band or going completely independently or both. And he's kind of doing both right now. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. I, I did want to ask, because you brought up Jim Cummings, who do you feel, ha- who would you cite as proper contemporaries to Zoller who fit within that particular mold? Because I don't think there are that many people doing that, and there's certainly really no one else being able to do that on such an organized level that Zoller and City State are. But who would you put in that same bracket? No, it's really difficult to think because, excuse me, because Zayler really, I think, is he's making waves in the business right now and really making a name for himself because of these things and because maybe it was a concept that studios and the consumers felt was antiquated in a sense. And not to say there aren't, a slew of talented independent directors out there. I mean, hey, we'll even throw them out there for the sake of argument. Jordan Peele is a pretty talented independent director, but the problem with Jordan Peele is that he's not really channeling that same kind of individual energy that Zayler is in the sense that Zayler is doing it because he loves it and it doesn't seem like they're making huge profits off his movies right now but it's the financial risk that he's taking that they're taking peel is admittedly very conscious about the corporate nature of of his work and i think he's willing to to rub elbows with the right people to to grant himself a bigger platform and I, I mean, he, he said all of this in interviews, if you don't believe me. Uh, but Zayler really doesn't seem to be too bothered by that. He he seems to know what kinds of movies he wants to make. And he also knows that they can, at times, be polarizing. He's said this in interviews himself as well. So it's it's really interesting because while we have a lot of independent talent out there, I don't think many are working in the same vein right now as Zayler is with Cinestate. And I think Cinestate, if you follow their feeds, they're, if they weren't before, they're at least becoming very conscious about that, again, like I said, countercultural and almost counter-corporate aspect of, of their productions. And yeah, so that's what makes it a rarity right now and why I really can't think of anybody that kind of measures up to that allure or at least that that standard right now no i i would say that jim cummings is pretty close to that but it's still very early there we need to see if he can actually follow up thunder road and you know he he's done well with producing and directing these short films but i i'm very curious to see how his career unfolds and it's interesting that you do mention jordan peele have you seen us yet no i i actually want to even though i'm i'm a i'm a staunch critic of his i do want to see us because it looks 
like technically proficient and it looks competently put together. It's just the hyperbole I can't get over. I'll tell you what. Well, also, have you seen the Twilight Zone? Because I know that that is uh, fresh to CBS All Access now. I haven't checked it out yet. They put a couple episodes on YouTube, so I plan on watching them soon. But as far as us goes, I will say that I don't think it was a bad movie. But I I believe that the success of Get Out has changed his filmmaking style and made him more aware of his... The tra- at least the traits that were praised for Get Out. And he's chosen to lean harder into them. And it's killed a bit of the luster that I found present with Get Out. And that's all I'll say for us, because maybe there's an episode there in the making uh, with you or whoever else. Sure. You know? So uh, I would like to do a follow-up episode with you uh, to this one on the standoff at Sparrow Creek, because... I think you'll understand why that movie is extremely daring for its subject matter by the end of it. Uh, again, that's all I'll say. I won't get into any spoiler talk for that particular film. It's a it's a fun, tight, tense little movie. And it might be my favorite of the year thus far, even more so Whoa. over this one, which I, I put pretty high up. Yeah, it's- yeah. If there's no confusion, uh, the, Dragged Across Concrete is... I think this might be a knee-jerk reaction, but I don't think it is. I think Dragged Across Concrete is probably in the top 10. I I would say, yeah, top 10. Top 10 crime films of this decade, no questions asked. Um, Whoa, I thought you were going to say top 10 of this year, even though it's only uh, April. But uh, really, that's that's a pretty bold statement to make. I mean, granted, we're at the end of the decade now, but you... What what else would be in that tier? Again, I would have to think. Uh, well, I know one of your favorites would be Drive. And while I don't necessarily love that movie as much as everybody else, I think it did a lot for the crime genre because the crime genre is very procedural a lot of the time. We get a lot of, like through the 90s and early 2000s, we got a lot of Robert De Niro style gangster movies which kind of ran their course and then we had the heist movies when you think of things like uh, the italian job and whatnot drive and why dragged across concrete could probably be classified as some of the best of the best of the the entire decade is because they subverted the genre cliches almost completely and and induced stylistics that i think 99% of the rest of the film landscape wouldn't integrate before then. And I I think they, they offered real change and gave a new direction. Now this is, this is going to have to be proven over time with dragged across concrete, but they really paved the way for a new direction in crime films that subverted the cliches and, and gave more substance. But that's just my take right now. It's funny that you mentioned Drive because my instinctive reaction to you saying that movie was, is that really a crime film? But it is, it's absolutely a crime film. And you're right in that it subverted so much of what was established by putting the crime element second. It's a much softer, I don't want to say feminine, uh, but there's almost like an, just a weird air of 
romanticism to it that changed a lot of filmmaking throughout this decade where a lot of people are more hung up now on the visual elements and the peripheral aspects of, of those movies as opposed to leaning into the gratuity of the violent nature that's featured in the film. Now, obviously, Refn does that because uh, Gosling stomps a guy's head like a fucking melon in an <laughs> elevator. So there are those aspects still, and it, it provides a great contrast to the otherwise beauty of the, the movie. But yeah, I, I think you're on point there to name Drive as uh, one of the ten of this decade. I would have to finish out the rest of this year in film and see if anything else can measure up to drag dragged across concrete. But I don't think you'd be that far off in saying it might be one of the ten of the decade. I, I it'll take a little bit of time and retrospect. Well, I mean, just think I about it. Let, let's just go over it really quickly. Just think about it by year. I sure. think if we classify this dragged across concrete as 2019, just for the sake of argument, I know it was made last year, but if we classify it for 2019, we're in April right now. I think it will be really hard to top that subversion by any crime film that comes out later this year that you're going to be able to say, uh, they're following that cliche, or uh, this character is doing that. I've seen that before. Or, or oh, this, yeah, the, the, the villain is lame. He's too sympathetic. He's not intimidating. So that's how I'm classifying it right now. And I, I, I think it's going to be really hard to jump over that hurdle if you're another crime film of this year. 